You are listening to The Desk Set, a bookish podcast for reading broadly. We're your hosts, Emily Calkins and Britta Barrett. And on this episode, we're talking about books about the future. First up, I chat with Professor Kelly Wienersmith, who co-wrote the book Soonish, which looks at 10 emerging technologies and the things that might happen if we get them and the things that might stand in the way of those technologies being developed. Then I chatted with science fiction novelist Sarah Pinsker about her new book, We Are Satellites. And finally, Britta and I will have a chat about books about the future, both fiction and nonfiction. I am an adjunct assistant professor at Race University, and the main thing that I study is parasites that manipulate the behavior of their host. So parasites that make hosts do things that are bad for the host, but are good for the parasite. Uh, And I really love working on parasites, but I also really like having you know, a diversity of topics that I'm thinking about in my life. Uh, One of my greatest fears in life is getting bored. And so I'm constantly trying to find new things to keep myself busy. Uh, But my husband and I decided we were going to write a book. And we decided it would be really fun to write about emerging technologies. And we wrote about 10 technologies, what hurdles still need to be overcome for these technologies to become part of our lives, and the way these technologies could make our lives much better, or perhaps much worse. So the book came out in 2017. And you note in the intro that even as you were writing it, you were having to make changes because there were advances in the technologies that you were writing about as you were putting Mm -hmm. it together. And I'm wondering if you're keeping track of these technologies still. Certainly SpaceX has managed to... uh, to reland a bunch of their boosters. They're dropping the cost of sending stuff up into space. Uh, So that's sort of an exciting advance that's happened since the book came out. Uh, Another chapter where advancements were happening pretty rapidly while we were writing was for augmented reality. So I'm guessing most people know what augmented reality is, but just briefly, it's when you have things that are sort of virtual overlaid on top of the real world. So the example that probably everybody knows about now is Pokemon Go, where, you know, the app has a feature where you turn on your Mm -hmm. camera and it shows you the world. And on top of the world, there's a Pikachu that you can try to catch. You know, you can add nice things like a Pikachu to your life. Uh, But you could also imagine using augmented reality to remove things that make you feel uncomfortable. So for example, if you're walking around a city and there's homeless people and that makes you feel sad, you could you know, block them out with augmented reality and, you know, maybe live a happier life pretending that stuff like that doesn't exist. Uh, And and that's probably not a great way to go about living life because it it does exist. And maybe you should feel like you want to, to do something to try to help with that situation. And then additionally, you know, if you were to send soldiers to war, would they maybe be able to like block out the faces of the people that they're attacking? And, you know, maybe that would be good in that fewer people would come home with PTSD, but maybe we should be aware of what we're doing so that we can weigh the costs of our actions, uh, you know, appropriately. Uh, so I, I think augmented reality, when it's used to block things out, has maybe mm-hmm. some complicated implications. Some of the potential outcomes are 
like really amazing and also kind of <laughs> horrifying. Um, so the one that stood out to me was neurocyber yeah. connection. We were we were researching brain computer interfaces, and the idea there is that like there's a device that's reading the stuff that's going on in your brain and responding in some way. And so you know, for example, if you're a paraplegic, maybe you get hooked up to some devices and you have a brain computer interface where when you think move my arm. Uh, the device could move your arm the way that you want it to be moved. And so you can imagine that this technology can improve the lives of many, many people. And one of the questions that I asked all of the scientists that I interviewed was, uh, you know, what what is the like long-term end game for this technology and how is it going to change all, all of our lives? And the answer that I expected for brain-computer interfaces was that like, We'll be able to give mobility to people who have lost their mobility or were born without it. And you know, I expected sort of a medical answer. But uh, one of the answers that I got from uh, Dr. Gerwin Schock was that, you know, we can use these devices to sort of connect each other's connect our brains together so we can like share all of our thoughts and ideas like all the time. And that sounds awful to me. I, I don't want that. I, I think that part of why society functions so well is that there is a filter between the things that we think and the words that we say, or at least there's the opportunity for you to filter your thoughts before saying them. Not everybody does, but, but, it, <laughs> but it was funny because yeah. I, I thought that this guy was maybe going to be the only guy who gave that answer. And so I asked a bunch of other people and I expected like, well, maybe this is just like the quirky guy in the field who has sort of like this offbeat idea. But most of the people that I talked to were like, yeah, probably we're going to end up going in that direction. Yes, we're going to do all the nice medical stuff we talked about. But like, yeah, we probably will end up there one day. And I was like, we should stop funding these people. <laughs> So one of the things that's really clear in the book is that the technologies and sort of the work that goes into developing them is not, they don't exist independent of the scientists who work on them, right? Like the technologies are shaped by these real people, some of whom are quite quirky. <laughs> I remember, uh, and this was still about brain computer interfaces, is that there was a guy whose name, who I think his last name was Kennedy, who studied who studied brain computer interfaces and he was using it to study um, I think it's called locked in syndrome where people are still like you know alert and they're having thoughts but they can't really move their body so it's almost like they're you know a fully functioning brain trapped inside a, a non-functioning body and so he was trying to use brain computer interfaces to sort of communicate with people to give them sort of rich, richer lives and for whatever reason he ended up, not being able to get funding or support for his research anymore, but he had a device that he thought was promising. And so he decided, I'm going to implant it in myself. And you can't legally do that in the United States. So he went uh, to some other country uh, and he got it implanted and he comes back and it's working for a little while and then it gets infected. And he knew that this was a possibility, but he starts having some problems. I think for a while he was having a little trouble with his speech and he ends up needing to get the device removed. <laughs> you, you end up with these people who like 
totally believe in the technologies that they're making and are totally invested. And, and in particular, the brain computer interface community is like really into what they're doing and really passionate about it, which is awesome. It makes them like so much fun to talk to. And their passion is really improving the lives of a lot of people right now. Um, but, you know, sometimes it gets into weird territory. And uh, this guy, Kennedy, I think is, is a good example of a quirky personality uh, that we came across while doing this research. I was thinking about asteroid mining, which is one of the other topics that you cover in the book. And I don't think that I've ever seen this included in science fiction, but you sort of mention in the book that like one of the ways that we might harness asteroids is like literally to harness them, like literally to catch them in a net. And then we could like throw them at stuff, which is not great, potentially not great. Right. Um, and I, I think it's kind of fascinating that I haven't ever seen that included in science fiction because it seems like such a uh, – like if you're going to be writing about space battles, you might as well include like people throwing asteroids at each yeah, other. Yeah, huge missed opportunity there. You could choose if you're angry to fling asteroids, uh, but you could also just – not be good at your job and bring an asteroid too close to Earth. So, you know, there are these proposals to go capture an asteroid, bring it close to Earth, and then do research on it and, you know, sort of like maybe mine it and see what's in there. Uh, but like, I mean, I guess you just have to hope that you understand things well enough that you don't get it so close that it ends up getting sucked in by Earth's gravity and then you get a, like, dinosaur-level extinction event. That would be bad. Um, and so, yeah, it... it <laughs> I can't say that I, I mean, so the Heinlein's The Moon is a Harsh Mistress use, uses big rocks flung at Earth, but they're not asteroids. But uh, but yeah, it's a missed opportunity. Someone should write about that. You mentioned earlier that you co-wrote the book with your husband. And I'm wondering what that collaboration is like, slash like how you work with your partner without driving each other nuts. <laughs> uh, it takes some practice and it takes uh, it takes two people who probably have more confidence than they ought to have because, uh, you know, when your partner <laughs> is like critiquing the writing or you're disagreeing about what's interesting and what's important, it's important to not get your feelings hurt because it's just sort of part of the process that needs to happen. Mm-hmm. Um, so my husband and I have mm-hmm. enjoyed working on projects for a while. We used to, for a while, we did a sketch comedy troupe with some other people. And, you know, we worked pretty closely on that. And then we had a podcast called the weekly Wiener Smith. And that was, that was really fun. And then we had kids, our greatest collaboration. Uh, and our kids were too loud <laughs> for us to do podcasting anymore. And so we had sort of been like casting about for a new project to work on together. When my husband got approached by an agent who said, you know, would you, would you like to write a book? If so, I'll help you find a publisher. And so we decided that writing together would be, uh, would be a fun thing to try. And so the way we'd split it up is that for each of the topics, one of us would be assigned, uh, the job of doing the primary initial research. So, you know, we'd get a bunch of textbooks, we'd get a bunch of scientific articles, and one of us would go through and read all of that while taking careful notes, uh, and then sort of draft out a chapter that sort of summarized everything. And then we'd send it to the other one and they would decide, does this even make sense? Like, have, have you explained fusion clearly? Uh, and so they do sort of, you know, like one of the problems with researching something is that initially it seems very confusing. And then after you've been researching it for six months, it doesn't seem confusing anymore. And you somehow forget what made it confusing in the first place. 
And so having someone to remind you that like, Mm -hmm. no, this is a complicated topic uh, is important. And so we kept one person's brain kind of free and clear to do that read. Uh, And then I would go through and do interviews for each chapter. And then we'd go and we'd do another round of editing. And then my husband is a very funny guy. So he would go through and add anecdotes and add jokes. And he'd also add comics. And then we sent it out to experts to like see if anyone could catch catch errors or ways we had not sort of explained things quite correctly. And then we sent it to friends of ours who do not study those things so that they could be our sort of lay readers to tell us again, like, are, are we explaining it clearly? Uh, and that's pretty much how the collaboration went. It's a little bit different than how we're doing things this time, uh, but but it worked pretty well. And we would go on a walk every night and talk about what we had learned and sort of try to get each other on the same page about things and discuss, you know, how to organize the book. And so it was like a lot of dates that were completely about book organization, which isn't for everyone, but worked fine for us. Uh, and yeah, so it's, it's, it's great having, having a collaborator <laughs> that you live with, uh, when you're writing about things that you both enjoy. One of my other questions was going to be about sort of the process of distilling this really technical information into something that is accessible for lay readers. So thank you for speaking to that sure. as well. Um, you mentioned that you sent it out to experts and I'm wondering what the, what the experts take on the tone <laughs> is, because the book is very sort of silly and irreverent in a lot of ways, uh, which makes it fun to read for someone who's not, you know, an expert in asteroid mining or space elevators or whatever. There was there was a fair bit of variability in in opinions on that. So uh, in the I think it was the asteroid mining chapter, we interviewed a Dr. Martin Elvis and we couldn't help ourselves. We made a bunch of jokes about how his name is Dr. Elvis. We drew him like he was Elvis and we thought we were really quite clever. Uh, And then I sent it to another expert on asteroid mining. And that guy was like, oh my gosh, this Elvis joke is ridiculous. And he was not at all impressed. Uh, On the other hand, uh, (laughs) Dr. Martin Elvis is now a friend of ours because like, I don't know if he thought it was funny or not, but he enjoyed the chapter and we had you know, sort of a good time. And one of the perks of writing a book like this and getting to meet lots of interesting people is that sometimes they stay in your life uh, and you get to have fascinating conversations after you've written the book. Uh, But yeah, so some people, some people thought it was great. Some people accepted that humor is, you know, that, that they write technical stuff and humor is sort of a different way of connecting with audiences and they don't really need to like it. It's just different and that's fine. And then other people I think were, were not big fans, but you know, when you write a book, it's never going to be for everyone. And what we really wanted them to tell us was, are the facts right or not? And for the most part, I think most, most of the experts had nice things to say, uh, but not all of them. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit more about the book you're working sure. on now? Um, yeah. So the, the book that we're working on now, so when we were reading about asteroid mining and cheap access to space, we got really excited about space law, which like, it's still when I say, you know, I talked to a space lawyer the other day, that still seems like a job out of a Heinlein novel and not a real job that exists yet. But but there are space lawyers and uh, and and we became interested <laughs> in like, so, for example, there is an outer space treaty that came out through the United Nations that says that, you know, nobody can appropriate things or claim claim sovereignty of things in space. So you can't land on the moon and say, this patch is mine and I'm putting a settlement here. 
that that violates international law. But we're now at a point where people are talking about wanting to go out and settle space and or or, you know, like um, people want to go out and mine the moon for various resources. And so now we're in this legal gray area where you're definitely not allowed to go out there and say this is mine. But can you go out there and say, so this patch isn't mine, but I'm going to mine it for resources and then sell those resources. But I'm never claiming that I own this patch, but I'm still going to sell the resources from it. And that is, I guess, weirdly a legal gray area. Hmm. And some countries interpret that that's okay. So the United States uh, had a the 2015 Space Competitiveness Act, I think is what it was called, where they were like, it's okay for our companies to go out there and do work. We're not claim- saying they're claiming sovereignty, but they can go out there and and do the stuff that they want to do. Uh, and so the international community, you know, some people were sort of like not super comfortable with that. and But nothing really ended up happening that was an extreme pushback. So it looks like sort of the world is moving forward with that interpretation. And so Zach and I just sort of became fascinated in thinking about well, like what is allowed out there? How does law have to change so that we could have settlements? And additionally, what is it going to be like when we live out there? So, you know, there's there's no gravity. What does that do to our bones? There's a lot of radiation. What does that do to our brain or to our cancer risk? And so the book is sort of about like, what will our habitats look like? What might happen to our bodies or what might we need to do to protect our bodies in space? Uh, Are there psychological problems when you're living in isolated and confined environments? And we sort of go through the initial settlement stages all the way out to questions like, uh, will we be able to have sustained populations where, you know, families have children and those children have children? Uh, Is that a thing that's possible in a high radiation, low gravity environment? And what might governance look like? Uh, And what might the future of war in space look like if you have a settlement on Mars, for example, that's not happy with what's happening on Earth? And so, so yeah, we're, we're talking about space settlements from the biology all the way up to like government and war questions. I feel like that carries some of the same threads through, not just in terms of the topic, but also like it doesn't ignore sort of the ethical questions. You know, when we were reading about these 10 technologies, we really wanted those, all of those technologies to work out because they sound awesome to us. But we are also sort of like nervous people who want to make sure that things don't go poorly. And, you know, we really feel like for a lot of these things, what's important is starting to have conversations way ahead of time so that you can sort of steer the direction of these things and be sort of at least aware and plan for the way things Mm -hmm. could go really poorly. So you mentioned that you have kids. And I have two little kids, too. And I'm wondering which of the technologies in the book, it sounds like definitely space sort of in general, but if there are others that we should be most excited or concerned about in our kids. Oh, interesting. Uh, I mean, we didn't talk about self-driving cars, but I'm really hoping that that pans out before my kids are old enough to drive. Yeah, I mean, I, I think a lot of the technologies would make our lives neat, You know, like it would be really cool if robots were building more customized houses, which is sort of a chapter that we talk about. Mm -hmm. And but, you know, so like as a parent who can reasonably expect that her children will be able to afford housing, um, you know, I feel like a lot of these technologies are more exciting in terms of like the hope that everybody will have higher standards of living. So, you know, the idea with these these robot made houses Mm -hmm. is that it'll hopefully bring down the price of really nice housing and a lot more people will be able to get really nice housing. 
Uh, and so like, I'd like my kids to live in a world where there's more equality. And so for some of these technologies, I'm excited. So like fusion, for example, if fusion works out, the hope is that you'll end up with uh, an energy source that is hopefully not super expensive, but is producing a lot less greenhouse gases. Uh, and so, you know, maybe that could mm-hmm. mitigate the oncoming effects of global climate change. And I'd like my kids to live in a world where they don't have to worry about that. So so I guess probably out of the 10 technologies in the book, I would hope that fusion would come along because it seems like we really need a nice solution to uh, to ways to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And, and that might that might be the way to do it. All right. So the last question that we always ask people is, what are you reading now? Oh, I am reading Roadside Picnic by the Strugatsky brothers, two brothers who wrote science fiction. They were both from the Soviet Union, I believe. And this book is just sort of about life in this area where alien technology has sort of come down and they're interacting with it. And I'm only like an hour into it, although I'm reading it for the second time. Uh, I'm really into Russian literature right now. And and I read uh, Monday Starts Saturday is another book that they wrote, which is just sort of a fun sort of nonsense book about this ministry of people who are studying weird sort of out there things. And uh, anyway, the Strugatsky brothers write really great science fiction. Well, thank you again for taking some time to chat with me today. It was really great to talk to you. It's fascinating stuff. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. It was really fun chatting with you. And I like Zach and I love libraries so much. So it's great to be able to uh, to be on your podcast. And I appreciate that you wanted to read and talk about our book. So thank you very much. My name is Sarah Pinsker. I am a writer of mostly science fiction and fantasy uh, and mostly short stories and novels. So your new book is called We Are Satellites, and it's uh, about a lot of things, but it's sort of about brain chips. What inspired you to write a novel about brain implants? So I was uh, I had a, a day job where I worked with people with epilepsy. And uh, one, of, one of the things that I did was I went to... Uh, neurology and epilepsy uh, symposiums and listen to doctors. And uh, there was this doctor who talked about an implant that had been in the process of being developed for epilepsy, but it turned out not to have a good epilepsy use. And so it was being used for something else. And I started thinking about how frustrating it would be if you have a type of epilepsy and you're waiting and waiting for this thing that might work, and then they decide it's not going to be for you after all. And I went from there to, but at least, at least if it was going to, you know, another medical condition, then you could say, well, at least it's helping someone. And what would, what would you feel like if then they said, well, actually there's no medical application, but we have this great commercial application. How frustrated would you be if they developed something that completely excluded you that had been initially started to help you and, and everything sprung from there. So the world of of the novel is very similar to our own. And one of the things that I appreciated about it is the technology doesn't, in a lot of ways, seem that far-fetched. Can you talk a little bit more about the research that you did after you kind of had the initial idea? How did you go about researching what might be possible? 
Yeah. So I did have all these uh, brain doctors at my at my disposal. And so I talked to a, a few of them about what I could do with a brain implant. And there's a blue light that that uh, I wanted as sort of a status indicator so that the company would be able to like, it, it would sort of be an advertisement for the company that, that anyone who had this had this blue light on their head. And it turned out that the exact like blue light that I was picturing, like right at someone's temple was actually at the right spot for the, you know, for a fairly convenient place that, that the doctors I was talking to said that I could put it. Um, and then I did a lot of research about medical devices, which I, I had also thought would be a limiting factor, but it turned out to be quite an eye opener on the differences between how medical devices get to the market versus medications. Um, and it turned out that it was a really ripe place as well for, for telling the story because, because there's a lot more leeway than I expected with medical devices. Uh, it's, it's the Wild West. So sort of related to that, the novel is a pretty um, damning portrait of like corporate greed and the way that corporations prioritize profit over everything else, including safety. So there are tons of examples of this in the real world, but I'm wondering if there's anything specific that inspired that element of the story. Nothing super specific, but we, we do see it everywhere. Uh, most of the big tech companies, in theory, have ethics of- officers, but the question is how much do they listen to them? You know, If you pay the money to develop something, will you listen if people say stop? Um, and I think I think you could point to just about any aspect of technology right now and and ask that question whether you know Elon Musk wants to put things in our brains right now. So which of these things do we actually say no to? The novel is very much about sort of technology and and corporations and all of that, but it's also really about this family and sort of family dynamics and the way that different family members. Uh, respond to the technology. So there's this family at the center of the novel. It's moms, Val and Julie, and they have two kids, David and Sophie. And I'm wondering what made you interested in exploring familial relationships in a sci-fi novel? Uh, So I think you could take this idea of this technology and you can write the, the tech thriller, or you could write the medical thriller, or you could write the political thriller, or you could write the murder mystery. Like there are all these things you could write, but at the end of the day, the stories that I like writing and that capture my interest at novel length are the stories that that have to do with with family dynamics. You know, just people living their lives and having to to deal with something. Like I'm not I'm not into the chosen one narrative in the the person who saves the day. Um, I, I just want to know like how people are coping with this and how it, how it changes their lives. So I want to pivot a little bit and talk about your first novel, A Song for a New Day. Uh, it's set in a future where large gatherings like concerts have been banned because of violence and disease. And so all human connection is happening virtually, which sounds um, disquietingly similar to our present day. And I'm wondering just like what it's been like for you sort of living through the last year, having spent so much time creating a fictional world that was dealing with some of the same sort of restrictions. Well, the funny thing, like, like given the timelines of, of when you do all of this stuff, like when, when you finish a book, you sort of let it go and then you're done with, you're sort of done with that world. And then it kind of comes back to you a little more when the, when the book comes out and you, you do interviews and you do readings. And, and so then you get to be in that world again and then you sort of let it go again. And this was like, uh, 
like a boomerang or a basketball that kept bouncing back into sort of into my face. Um, it was like, it was a world that I, you know, you have to inhabit it while you're writing it. And I was ready to not be in it because it was a very disquieting place to live. So I was ready to move on. And then it, kept coming back and and it became it, 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 the the reality that we've lived for the last year is remarkably similar to to that book but also to sort of a middle of the book that I didn't quite write because my book is more concerned with the before and the after uh, so living through the part that I didn't write I felt was kind of my, my punishment <laughs> and it's a it's a music oriented book the the two main characters are a musician who remembers who, who started out in the before and remembers before and after and then a young woman who's grown up in this after where the restrictions and the lockdowns didn't end and the the danger did end but the but the lockdown didn't um for your own safety i say in quotes um and so she's never known anything else and and it's been you know, interesting as the thing extends, but also just because I told it from a musician, a musician's point of view and a music fan's point of view, I think it's resonated a lot with people because music is one of the like big capitals things we can't have right now. Um, live, live music that is. So, so it's resonated a lot with the people who are missing live music and the people who make live music. So you've written about a sort of pandemic a pandemic future and a brain chip future and i'm wondering what you're gonna or what you're working on now or what you're gonna write about next uh, so my dirty secret is that during this pandemic i have not been able to write a single future set story um i i just i cannot do near future right now uh so so the novel that i'm working on right now uh, which I had been planning in any case to be my next novel uh, is contemporary and historical. I had to, I had to turn backwards, but I was going to in any case. So I can't say it's entirely the fault of the pandemic, but in my short fiction, I also haven't written any near future this whole year. So this interview is going to be part of an episode about books about the future. That's one of the themes for our reading challenge this year. So I'm wondering if you could share some of your favorite books about the future, whether they're fictional or nonfiction. Sure. Um, all right. And hopefully I'm sitting in front of my bookshelves. Um, the Future of Another Timeline is a really good one. Autonomous by Annalie Newitz also. Charlie Jane Anders, The City in the Middle of the Night. Kedwell Turnbull's The Lesson. Blackfish City by Sam Miller. Um, Le Guin is always my, you know, if we're talking older books, Le Guin's uh, science fiction uh, and Leckie's science fiction. Those are sort of in the, the more... Uh, distant futures, I guess, as opposed to the near futures. Those are all great recommendations. So we'll put them in a list um, in the show notes. Uh, thank you for sharing those. You as well. Thank you so much. Those were, those were great questions. Historically, people have understood 
science fiction and fantasy to be two different things, right? Like fantasy kind of has magic and science fiction is based in some kind of scientific reality. And there's a famous quote about how there's a point at which science becomes magical to people, right? Because you don't understand, like the lay person doesn't understand the difference uh, or doesn't understand how something, how super advanced technology works. So it feels like magic. Often science fiction and fantasy now are lumped together in a genre that people call speculative fiction. That's sort of about like things that are not happening in our current world, but maybe could happen in some other world or in our future. I feel like there's there's a generation of people who grew up on science fiction and then brought that to life. Mm hmm. When I think about like cell phones, the earliest models were totally designed after like the Star Trek communicator, right? Mm -hmm. We, you can now like drink a meal replacement called Soylent, which is gratefully less ghoulish than it's fiction <laughs> on your part. And you know, there are people like Elon Musk who has a company that makes flamethrowers. And like when he launched the Tesla Roadster into space as like a dummy payload, for SpaceX included Isaac Asimov's uh, Foundation Trilogy, I believe, and Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, like, in there, just in case aliens found it. Like, this is us. This is what we made. This is important. That, like, science fiction has just such a strong role in, like, shaping our future. It's sort of like that mantra, you can't be what you can't see, but also for like the entirety of civilization. When I talked to Kelly Wienersmith uh, about Soonish, one of the things that was really clear to me in it was like how much the evolution of technology is shaped by individual scientists and like whatever thing they're kind of interested in. And of course, like it's also influenced by this broader ecosystem. But I think you're right that there are so many people who get interested in science and science fiction as kids. And then it kind of like puts these ideas in their mind about like, the kinds of questions that they want to ask and the kinds of problems that they want to solve. So one of those technologies that existed in science fiction that's now becoming a reality that you talked about uh, in your interview with Kelly was neurocyber connection. And that's really interestingly explored in a book called Made for Love by Alyssa Nutting. It was recently adapted uh, as a limited series for HBO Max. And in describing the premise, I'm going to give away some light spoilers, so just a heads up in case you want to go in completely blind to reading or watching it. Essentially, it's about a young woman who is partnered to a tech billionaire who decides that he wants to mind meld with her. And he ends up doing this against her will and installing a chip that allows him to like see through her eyes. And when she realizes what he's done, she decides that she cannot abide uh, by this relationship anymore. She tries to escape, which turns out to be really difficult when your partner is someone who, you know, owns all of these technologies and can track you everywhere. And it's an absolutely wild ride of a story that also explores these really interesting issues around consent and privacy and surveillance and totally recommend that one. Are there any recent sci-fi books that you would suggest? Did you read The Resistors by Gish Jen? No. Okay, so this is a novel that came out, 
I think it came out in 2019. And it's set in what used to be the United States and is now called Auto America. So one of the hallmarks of this book is that like everything has these kind of weird, like cutesy names, which on one hand, you're like, well, that's really silly. You know, there's like an anti-immigration policy that's called ship them back and like that kind of stuff, which on one hand feels silly. But then when you think about how much of our social interaction has been sort of commodified into the platforms that we use to do it, like, oh, we're going to Zoom, you know, we're already kind of doing that. But anyway, so in The Resistors, society's been divided into kind of the haves and the have-nots, and the have-nots are referred to as the surplus, um, sort of unsurprisingly, mostly black and brown people, and they live on land that's kind of slowly disappearing underwater as climate change accelerates. So the story is about a surplus family. So it's a, a mom who's a lawyer. The dad is a former professor, no longer working. And they have a daughter named Gwen. And Gwen turns out to be an incredible pitcher. So they start this sort of like underground baseball league. And she's basically discovered by the, the haves uh, who are called the netted. And then the Olympics are reinstated. And sort of as a matter of national pride, Auto America is assembling a baseball team. And so Gwen is recruited for this team. And it's, it's like maybe an opportunity for her family to have entry into the other side of society. And it looks at sort of like, what does that really mean for them? Like, what are they, what would they gain? What are they giving up? Um, But one of the things that I really loved about this novel is that even though on one hand, it feels like so over the top, it's also very discomforting because it's not hard to see how each piece of the world that Jen has built is extrapolated from our contemporary society. So it feels like this really kind of sharp satire, but it also has really great characters, which is I can't read a novel if I can't get interested in the character. So it has like this great family story and also this like sort of satirical future world that's in some ways probably not realistic at all, but also is like directly tied to, you know, sort of troubling trends or existing social inequities or that kind of thing. One of the reasons I struggle with nonfiction is because it can be really intellectually engaging, but I need something that's like emotionally engaging as well for me to really stick with a book in order to like actually finish it. Uh, and I think that's what fiction's good at, right? Like one of the things that fiction can do really well is like make you care about people and the way that their lives are being impacted by technology. And I think the nonfiction I'm attracted to can do that too. The kind that I like to read is often memoir or a blend of memoir and essay writing. And even when it does discuss technology, thinking about books like Algorithms of Oppression or Invisible Women, you know, they're they're telling the story of how you know data collection impacts personal lives and, and the human element behind that. And it may seem like a kind of odd choice for a book about the future, but I'm also going to shout out Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit, who's one of my absolute favorite writers. Uh, you know, something that came up in your conversations was this idea of like the world we're leaving behind for children and youth and how important that is to you and other authors who are parents. Even as a child-free person, I'm super interested in, you know, being a good ancestor. And I think there's a lot of both fiction and nonfiction that can teach us something about that. But I wanted to share this quote from Hope in the Dark that is super emotionally resonant for me. Hope is an embrace of the unknown and the unknowable, an alternative to the certainty of both optimist and pessimist. 
Optimists think that everything will be fine without our involvement, and pessimists adopt the opposite position and both excuse themselves from acting. It is the belief that what we do matters, even though how and when it may happen, who and what it may impact, are not things we can know beforehand. We may not, in fact, know them afterwards either, but they matter all the same, and history is full of people whose influence was most powerful after they were gone. All right, and on that note... Thanks for listening. If you read a great book about the future, we want to hear what it is. You can tag us on Instagram or Facebook. You can email us at deskset at kcls.org. And depending on exactly when this comes out and when you hear it, it may be summer reading season. Visit kcls.org slash summer to learn about our summer reading challenge and how you can be entered into a drawing to win a gift certificate to a local bookstore. Happy reading.